but it is a true pleasure to welcome Dr. Amy Morell Taylor to Harrisburg. Uh, Dr. Taylor's research focuses on the social and cultural history of the U.S. South in the 19th century. Her latest book that we're promoting tonight is called Embattled Freedom Journeys Through the Civil War's Slave Refugee Camp. Her other books include The Divided Family in Civil War America, and she is the co-editor of the Uncivil Wars series. Uh, she is an associate professor of history at the University of Kentucky. In Embattled Freedom, Taylor explores the many thousands of men, women, and children who fled slavery and sought refuge behind the lines of the Union Army during the American Civil War. It has been called, or this topic has been called the largest hole in the literature on the American Civil War, and Amy Morell Taylor ably fills much of that gap. We're delighted she has made time out of her busy schedule to visit Harrisburg, uh, so please join me in giving a warm Harrisburg welcome to Amy Morell Taylor. Alex for that introduction. Uh, thank you for having me here. This is an incredible store and you'll have to forgive me during my remarks if you see me kind of looking around because I haven't had a chance to fully explore and it's uh, so nice to see an independent bookstore thriving uh, these days and uh, it's especially meaningful to be here because while I was working on the research for this book I uh, was living in Albany, New York. I used to teach at the State University of New York there and would make many trips down to Washington, D.C. to the National Archives to do my research. And like any good East Coast traveler, I learned that you should avoid the Jersey Turnpike and take I-81 instead. So I drove through here many, many times, and I'm kind of ashamed that I did not stop here uh, and come see the bookstore in those trips. So glad I have a second chance uh, today. Uh, now, in the time I've been working on this book, I think it's pretty fair to say that the American public has been uh, or has really undertaken a pretty significant revision in how we remember and talk about and narrate the Civil War. Uh, you all have heard the debates and the controversies uh, about statues and uh, naming of buildings, and we have Confederate memorials coming down and new exhibits going up and uh, new museums opening even. There's uh, next month in Richmond, Virginia, the American Civil War Museum is opening, replacing what had been the Museum of the Confederacy. So it's quite a time. Uh, it's especially heartening to see that more and more Americans are acknowledging what brought on this war and was simultaneously destroyed by it, and that, of course, is slavery. And for somebody like me who's been researching this subject for quite some time, uh, I'm very glad to see that. But I also, over the years, um, have come to believe that that subject, too, particularly the end of slavery, emancipation, deserves a little bit of reinterpretation as well. Uh, we we're probably all familiar with one primary way in which Americans tell the story of emancipation during the Civil War. And it centers around Abraham Lincoln. It centers around his Emancipation Proclamation, this one decisive order, decisive moment, uh, decisive turn of events. And as we usually tell the story, the proclamation transformed what the war was about, and uh, as well as the transforming the futures of four million men, women, and children who had been enslaved in 1860. But, uh, it's not that I want to tear down that story. It's not that I want to take down any Lincoln statues or anything like that. That is an important story for us to tell, but it's simply not a complete one. And uh, that was something that was really came home to me uh, while I was doing research for another book, and I kept coming across photographs 
that photographers in the 1860s, during the Civil War era, they were going into the South and uh, taking pictures of a very different scene than what I had imagined from the story of the Emancipation Proclamation. And they were sending back photos like what's on the cover of my book, photos of these houses, large clusters of them, clusters of them that were inside the lines of the Union Army, not to house soldiers, but to house what turned out to be an estimated 500,000 men, women, and children who were fleeing slavery during the American Civil War. And they were seeking refuge with the Union Army. They were refugees from slavery. And these images grabbed my attention years ago because it, it seemed to me that there was somewhat of a disconnect between the story of what we tell of the proclamation and what the, the story these images uh, were telling. And uh, the disconnect is that, you know, in the story of the proclamation, I think we sometimes assume that freedom came overnight. January 1st, 1863, it came overnight to people in slavery. But these images tell a different story of people who under the most dangerous of circumstances hit the road and sought refuge with an army that was fighting the most destructive war the nation had ever seen. Freedom did not come to them. They risked their lives to search for it. And as, it, as I looked into it, it turned out 500,000 at least did so, or that's really one-eighth of the enslaved population in 1860. So I came to realize that the story of emancipation was much bigger and more complicated than the story we usually tell. Uh, it involved a massive displacement of people across the South, uh, which is, has a pretty strong resonance with uh, news today. And uh, I began to ask why, why did this happen? Why did it apparently have to happen? And how was this lived and experienced by those trying to become free? So those were some of the questions that I started to ask as I began researching this book. And I described the book as a book that's not about how freedom was promised to enslaved people. That's the story we've been telling about the Emancipation Proclamation. But it's really a story of how they themselves, how enslaved people themselves made that promise a reality and how they did it by uprooting themselves and becoming refugees from slavery. So I thought I would uh, today just give you uh, a basic overview of how the story unfolds over the course of the book. Um, I want to read a couple short excerpts to give you a sense of it, and then uh, I'm happy to do some Q&A at the end. But I'll begin at the beginning. And the story begins at the very beginning of the war. In the war's opening days in spring 1861, uh, because that's when the first enslaved people determined that this war had something to do with freedom, and they set out on the region's roads and waterways. Now that itself is pretty remarkable, because Lincoln had just promised in his inaugural address in March 1861 that he would not interfere with slavery where it already existed, and federal law at the time restrained him. The Constitution restrained him. The 1850 Fugitive Slave Act restrained him. And how did it restrain him? Well, it made it federal law that uh, the federal government could not interfere with slavery or could not protect enslaved people, but instead uh, was obligated to help return slaves to their owners. Well, what happens is about a month into the war in May 1861, after trying in places like Pensacola, Florida, in Maryland, in Washington, D.C., a group of enslaved people in eastern Virginia 
approached Union General Benjamin Butler at Fort Monroe. Uh, Fort Monroe is right on the coast of Virginia. It's right across a creek from Hampton. They approached Butler and persuaded him to see the benefits of the Union allowing enslaved people inside its lines, basically of protecting them from returning to slavery. They argued that it was good for labor for the Union Army. You know, allow us into your lines that will take labor away from your Confederate enemies and will help the Union. Well, Butler was persuaded. He issued an order abandoning federal law and requiring his men to protect anybody who came inside the lines. And he elaborated, he said, or he justified it by basically saying, we will consider them like contraband property, like any other property that the enemy or can be seized from the enemy in a time of war. So you can hear from that, uh, he's allowing people in the lines to be protected, but stopping short of saying anything about freedom. Uh, this order simply classified them as another form of property, but still it was a big step. It was a step that opened the floodgates because what happened next is uh, all across the coast of Virginia, the Carolinas, through the border states, down the Mississippi Valley, hundreds of thousands of enslaved people started running away wherever there was a Union Army outpost. Uh, they did this again from the first year of the war to the very end. And uh, I've tried over the course of my research to identify all the locations where this was happening and identified about 300, although I think that's a conservative uh, number. There were many more. Um, but the, if you look at a map, which I have in the book, of where these refugee settlements were, they correspond exactly with where the Union Army was moving and where the Union Army was occupying the South because that was the most important variable uh, in determining where people could flee and find protection. They had to get close to the Union Army. So sometimes this meant cities, cities like Nashville, Vicksburg, Memphis, uh, all those cities that were eventually occupied by the Union, we see these refugee settlements. They would take up residence in burned out buildings or make their own makeshift villages. Sometimes these settlements were out in rural areas on a former plantation. And uh, this was a pretty remarkable thing, actually, to see a, a place that had been a plantation, a landscape of enslavement, just a few months before even, now suddenly becoming a village of freedom-seeking people. Uh, and you can see that transformation in the built environment. I'll give you a couple examples. On a plantation in Giles County, Tennessee, where there had been 63 people enslaved before the war, there couple years into the war, 1,400 people were now living there in 240 newly built houses. So you can just kind of imagine the sudden proliferation of housing and imagine how this landscape had changed. Uh, similarly, a place called the Taylor Farm outside Norfolk, Virginia, once housed 11 people in slavery in 1860, but uh, just a couple years later had 1,000 people living there in 200 newly built houses. Sometimes it wasn't just cities or former plantations. Uh, the Union, the Union Army, and I'll talk a little bit more about this more in a minute, but sometimes tried to imagine uh, other places that they felt were perhaps more ideal for settling refugees. And one place that they turned their attention to were islands. 
some islands along the coast of the Atlantic, but especially islands in the Mississippi River. Now, I don't know how many of you have spent time along the Mississippi River and are familiar with its islands, but uh, the islands chosen here were not inhabited before the war, and there was good reason for that. Uh, they're pretty low-lying, vulnerable to flooding, and uh, although the Union Army thought these islands would be great for resettling refugees because it would sort of get them out of the way uh, of the army, but in fact, it just put them in a very vulnerable place, and in many cases, the river waters did rise and uh, flooded out some of these settlements. So some of the camps proved to be pretty transient. If it was not a flood that drove them out and resulted in a camp's destruction, then it might be incoming enemy troops. Or even worse, in the Mississippi Valley were the Confederate guerrillas who set their sights on these settlements as places that embodied the kind of social revolution they did not want to see happening. And as one Union official observed, quote, there is scarcely one of them all which has escaped guerrilla atrocities. But other refugee camps that remained in areas distant from combat and from rising river waters uh, could look forward to becoming something a little bit more stable and permanent. And some of them indeed, like the one pictured uh, on the cover here, did begin to take on some qualities that were more like a permanent village or town. You would see schools emerging, churches emerging, uh, roads, parks, and so forth. Uh, one such place that I talk about in the book was uh, a place that was named Freedman's Village. And uh, it was in Northern Virginia, in Arlington. And if you know the familiar, uh, know the history of that land, you may know that this land was once owned by Robert E. Lee, uh, the Confederate general on the eve of the war, well, his land became one of these more permanent villages uh, of uh, freedom-seeking people during the war. Well, a common thread for, through all these, whether they were on islands or in cities and, and so forth, uh, was the presence and the supervision of the military. And this is what really struck me when I started working on this project. You know, here are people who are coming out of slavery, defining the first days of freedom, experiencing the first days of freedom in this thoroughly militarized environment. So what does that mean to them? What does it mean to, to live like that? Um, so that is something I really focused my attention on. And I noted that, you know, the Army, on the one hand, when they committed to protecting uh, refugees, and they use the word protection all the time, they meant not just keeping them from being returned to slavery, but also committed to providing shelter, food rations, medical care, and opportunities to work for the Union Army for wages. Uh, they also appointed, the Army did, white men to new positions of uh, superintendent of contraband, they called them, superintendent of freedmen, or superintendent of the home for colored refugees. So the military started creating this new bureaucracy even, this new position uh, to sort of oversee all of this work. So it was a lot more formalized than I had expected when I first started out. But how well the Army, how well those men who were superintendents of freedmen and, and contrabands and so forth, how well they followed through with that protection is a big part of the story I tell, and it's a pretty complicated one. On the one hand, the Army was not equipped when this war broke out to oversee a refugee crisis. And not all of its men believed that this was really the duty of the Army to take on. 
It was expensive, for one thing, some argued. And soldiers and officers themselves varied in their commitment to uh, helping enslaved people. I mean, on the one hand, there were some privates and officers alike who were abolitionists in sentiment, and so they threw themselves right in and were eager to help these refugees. But others did the opposite and sometimes aided slave owners in coming in and retrieving their people from camps or who they claimed were their people and basically helped with kidnapping. So there's that, but at other times the needs of the military, its strategic considerations, what it needed to win the war, did not always align very well with the needs of people who are seeking refuge from slavery. And Lincoln himself, you know, he may have in his Emancipation Proclamation, maybe some of you are familiar, he justified his proclamation as a military necessity. This is what gave him the constitutional authority to, to step in and grant freedom. And so, uh, actually I have a quote here, he, in the proclamation, he declares it an act of justice warranted by the Constitution upon military necessity. So arguing that the army needed to free people in order to cripple the Confederacy and help win this war. But that was true more in theory and in the big picture than in everyday life in these camps. And sometimes what I, I took note of and, and write about in the book is how the needs of the two, the army and refugees, could sometimes become just knocked out of alignment. Uh, when the army needed to move on and fight a certain battle, but it was very dangerous for refugees to move on, but they lost that army protection. Or other times the army needed certain resources and space that had been allowed to refugees, and they might just simply take it back. So oftentimes these freedom-seeking people, they were entirely vulnerable, and their entire quest for freedom could be set back in an instant by the army that was supposed to be protecting them. So then that leaves the question, so then how did they endure? How did they do it? How did they survive in this militarized environment? Well, that's something I explore in uh, three stories that wind its way through the book. When I set out, I really wanted to uh, follow individuals and look at their, the day-to-dayness of this experience. What is it like to live this way? And um, I did do that and pieced together a few stories. And I thought what I would do now is just read you, give you a little introduction to each of these stories. Uh, I'm, I'm going to start by reading a passage that uh, sets up each story and uh, just give you a, a sample uh, and maybe a little bit more of an in-depth view of, of what these struggles were really like. So the first story, this is from the prologue of the book. This is set in Hampton, Virginia in September 1861. It was just five months into the U.S. Civil War and this once thriving coastal town seemed on the verge of collapse. Charred stumps occupied the places where mature trees once stood. Lone chimneys rose above the burned out ruins of houses and stores and churches. And once grand homes looked nothing like they did weeks before, having collapsed into piles of bricks. And yet, amid all the rubble and ashes, Edward and Emma Whitehurst saw more than a town destroyed. They began rolling barrels of flour into one of the abandoned buildings and dragged in bushels of potatoes. They placed pigs in the side yard to be fattened up and readied for slaughter and, as the late summer heat bore down on them, got to work baking ginger cakes. In these moments, this husband and wife, enslaved from the days they were born but now miles from the white man who claimed to be their owner, became storekeepers. 
And if they could make a go of it in this war-ravaged town, if the Union soldiers and other people like them seeking freedom from slavery were willing to come inside and buy their goods, then they could sell their way into a new life as free people. So with this story, I open up um, the, the, the journey of Edward and Emma Whitehurst, which is really the story of how somebody, or two people in this case, who have lived their whole lives in slavery are now in adulthood and they're taking their first steps out of slavery and they're trying to support themselves economically when they arrive in union lines. And so one of the most basic foundational layers of freedom, simply being able to support themselves. Well, little background, the Whitehurst were from a plantation in Newport News, Virginia. And they migrated first to a union camp there before heading to Fort Monroe. That was the place where Benjamin Butler was. And they worked in Union hospitals. Uh, Edward Whitehurst, he worked for a guy as a guide for the Union Army, helping them move the troops to a battle uh, on the peninsula that first summer. And they opened their store. Now, this was pretty surprising to me when I first came upon their story. Opening a store, I mean, that requires quite a bit of capital. You know, it requires inventory. Uh, what were they, you know, how did they, how did they pull this off? Well, it turned out this was a product, this decision of theirs was a product of years of saving. And as I investigated and looked into it, it turned out Edward had been um, a hired out slave was the term for it. So what that meant is that he likely had a skill, although I still don't know what that skill was. He may have been a carpenter, he may have been a blacksmith, and his owner hired him out to other people uh, around them. And normally how what happened is the wages he earned would go to his owner. But sometimes uh, it didn't quite work that way, especially if this enslaved person agreed to work extra hours. And sometimes they would be allowed to keep those extra wages. Well, they did, and Edward and Emma Whitehurst saved those extra wages. And by the eve of the war, they had saved $500 in gold and silver coin. And they had it in a trunk. Well, apparently they brought that trunk with them when they fled. And that was what they used to uh, start accumulating the flour, uh, the butter, the vegetables, and so forth that they would sell in their store. Well, I then traced their efforts to make it and to survive and the continual setbacks that came their way because, of course, this was war. And setbacks are going to come, including setbacks from the Union Army. Not just as not everyone in the Union was on board with freedom for enslaved people, not everybody thought that Edward and Emma Whitehurst uh, had a right to own property, uh, property in this case being the contents of their store. There were some that said, well, you know, enslaved people, they are property. They can't own property. Uh, there were others that um, thought somebody like Edward, who I, I should note, some of his inventory came from going back to his plantation and accumulating the goods that he and others had harvested. Some said, well, that's the property of his owner or the union themselves. Some of them said, no, we're coming into the South. Anything uh, that's in our orbit is now seized property by the union. I then tell about how a year after they established the store, the Whitehurst faced their greatest test. And what happened in that year uh, were rampaging soldiers from General George B. McClellan's army, which were in eastern Virginia trying to take Richmond that summer, but having failed. 
They came down the peninsula towards Hampton where the Whitehurst were, rolled up to their store in August 1862, got out of their wagons, went inside, and cleaned out every last barrel of flour and pound of butter in the store. And it left the Whitehurst with nothing. And these were the Union soldiers. This left them to spend the rest of the war in its aftermath trying to get on their feet economically and support themselves again, which was, a, again, a fundamental struggle shared by everyone seeking freedom. I then turned west to Arkansas in the second story, and I haven't given it all away. There's more. Um, to Arkansas and to the story of a woman named Eliza Bogan. So Helena, Arkansas, July 1863. Nearly two years later and over a 1,000 miles away, this low-lying town on the western bank of the Mississippi River had been continually deluged. If it wasn't the flooding river waters which left knee-deep mud along the town streets, then it was the arrival of thousands of Union troops to occupy this cotton-trading town, as well as the intermittent appearance of Confederate forces firing on the area from passing riverboats. Eliza Bogan, a woman who had spent her life harvesting cotton under the threat of a lash on a plantation just northwest of town, was now left to figure out if she could safely remain and call this place her new home. She spent her nights in a crudely built cabin that had a roof and a door but no floor to protect her from the river muck. Her husband had been sent hundreds of miles away as a new soldier in the Union Army, and her seven children remained back on her old plantation under the surveillance of their enslaver. Illness raged and death claimed the lives of one in four people in the tents and cabins around her. And now rumor had it that the Confederates were making inroads again, closing in on Helena and the nearly 4,000 freedom-seeking people who had take refu taken refuge there that year. Well, Eliza Bogan's story really turns attention to how the process of becoming free often required living amid active combat which meant that uh, one's physical survival could never, ever be taken for granted. Women like her were the targets of violence, and they fought back too. Freedom had to be fought for, quite literally, not just by men, but by women and children. Now, Bogan had uh, already escaped violence when she had come into Helena and into the refugee settlement there. Uh, her owner, several years before, had once been brought to court and tried with excessive cruelty to enslaved people. So maybe that was the reason why she left for Helena without her seven children. Maybe she just couldn't get them away. Maybe he stopped them. Or maybe she did so because she was protecting them from what was coming. Because not long after her arrival in Helena, the Confederates did indeed attack. In what would be the Battle of Helena, which was part of the Vicksburg campaign that summer, that July, uh, Confederates engulfed the city and forced refugees like her to flee. She returned with others days later when the battle was over and saw the site of their camp that had been burned down by the Confederates. It left them to start all over again, which was a not uncommon dynamic for many of these refugees. Bogan, however, chose not to start over in Helena and instead got herself on a Mississippi River steamboat and headed south into Louisiana. And I wish I knew the exact circumstances of how she got herself on this boat, what sort of boat, how did it happen. But like many parts of this story, there are still many holes. 
But why Louisiana? Why did she go there? Well, that's where her husband's regiment was. And in her mind, there was comfort and security in reuniting with her husband, especially in the absence of her children. So she went and she joined his company and his regiment in a way quite literally. She was sworn in, as she referred to it, as a laundress. So she occupied an official position in the army structure and was paid for it. She became part of their combat apparatus and spent the next two years traveling with his regiment from Louisiana to Tennessee to Mississippi to Texas. Along the way, she witnessed active combat and she remained vulnerable to the violence of Confederates, especially Confederate guerrillas. She nursed men too because as a laundress, you know, the job was not just the hard laborer of cleaning clothing, uh, but often encompassed nursing and cooking and many other things that the regiment needed. So she nursed men as they fell ill to disease or became wounded, and she witnessed the deaths of many of those men, including, as it turned out, her own husband, who was struck down with measles. This left her to spend the rest of the war in its aftermath simply trying to stay alive and to keep her family alive and hopefully reunited, because that's another foundational level of freedom, family. Well, next, I turn north to Kentucky for this last story. And this is set in Camp Nelson, Kentucky in August 1864. Camp Nelson, Kentucky is in the central part of the state. It's near where I'm from, uh, Lexington. August 1864. A year later on a high bluff overlooking the Kentucky River, the Union Supply Depot known as Camp Nelson hummed with the sounds of an army preparing to extend its reach across the wartime South. A sawmill produced lumber for erecting soldier barracks. A blacksmith shop made and repaired government wagons and steam-driven machines pumped in water from the river. Elsewhere across this stretch of rolling farmland were the sounds of newly recruited soldiers drilling in preparation for distant campaigns. But amid all of this was the voice of Gabriel Burdett, a minister trying to worship openly and freely in a way he never could while enslaved in a neighboring county. Some days he claimed space for religious worship outside in the open air, other days inside a barracks. He exhorted those in attendance to do God's work and to live according to his laws so that one day they could all be delivered to freedom. Because in this place, in this war zone, Burdett knew well, they were not there yet. And I begin his story uh, by taking readers back in time to uh, the neighboring county, which was Garrett County, Kentucky, where Burdett spent about 30, his first 30 years or so uh, in slavery. And in that time, he became a minister. First on his plantation, probably if uh, others were, are a guide, if the experience of others are a guide, it was probably secretively in the slave quarters, maybe out in a remote part of the land. But then at some point, he became visible, and his preaching became visible to white people in the county, especially to the elders of what was the Forks of Dix River Baptist Church. And this was a church, uh, a white-controlled church, and his owner was one of the elders of this church. The church uh, allowed Burdett to start preaching inside the church and to preach to enslaved people specifically because uh, by um, about 1850, 200 of the 500 members of this church were enslaved people. 
it was a pretty common uh, phenomenon in the South for white slave owners to want to bring their enslaved people to church with them, but to supervise the preaching and make sure only certain messages were preached, particularly messages about what uh, some of these pro-slavery Christians believed that the Bible sanctioned slavery and uh, deference to one's owner was God's will. So Burdett was asked to preach in this church, but was supervised, uh, supervised by uh, some of the white elders. And so you can imagine it was a pretty confining space for somebody uh, like him to be preaching in. <coughs> and by 1862, he pushed back. In uh, a day book from this church, there's this entry. I'll read it to you. We are informed that Brother Gabriel used publicly very objectionable language casting reflections and slurs upon the church and evincing a disposition to claim higher privileges than can be granted or tolerated. Now, they don't go into detail, but one can imagine uh, claiming higher privileges, slurs upon the church. He was probably pushing back against the pro-slavery Christian message uh, that he was expected to somehow support. He was subsequently punished and remained another year. But then by 1863, he did escape to Camp Nelson, which was 10 miles away. And he soon learned <coughs> that an army camp, which was fairly indifferent to religious worship, the Union Army, uh, yes, there were chaplains appointed. Sometimes these were done as, as almost political favors. Uh, the Army generally, while regulating so many other aspects of people's lives, of soldiers' lives, they took a fairly hands-off view to religious worship. And so Burdett soon learned that an army camp was a pretty open space for the free expression of religion. And so I trace his work over the next two years at the camp where he started establishing religious services for black congregants and preaching freely. He uh, established a church and then what was often an extension of the church, a school for the refugees there and uh, joined up with some uh, white allies who showed up on the scene, missionaries from the north, uh, also one from there in Kentucky, a man named John Fee. And if the name's not familiar to you, if you're familiar with Berea College, uh, John Fee was the founder of Berea College, the first integrated institution of higher ed in the south. <coughs> uh, Burdett eventually enlisted in the Union Army. He was though detailed to uh, help supervise the uh, refugee settlement there. So he was given a title, assistant superintendent of the refugee home. But then his story took a turn. In uh, the war ends in, 18, in April 1865, and in May 1865, uh, he was told to leave Camp Nelson and rejoin his regiment in Virginia. He then traveled with them as they got on a ship and made their way to Texas after the war. So he was separated from Camp Nelson, but soon was returned this time as an employee of the newly established Freedmen's Bureau. Uh, the Freedmen's Bureau, you may know, is a new federal agency that emerged at the end of the war. It basically took on the work that the Army had been doing in these refugee settlements, and we're now going to do it across the South. He was now going to be an employee of the Freedmen's Bureau, but he and others were tasked with the work of closing Camp Nelson and closing other refugee settlements. He was not on board with this aspect of the Bureau's work, and this left him and others to spend the post-war years pushing back 
and working at all costs to save these spaces and this land. Now, I don't want to give the whole book away, but just to conclude here, uh, I'll just say a little bit more about this particular issue, this uh, effort to save these spaces and uh, the debate over whether they should be saved. <coughs> and you may wonder, well, you know, if some of these spaces were in low-lying, disease-ridden areas um, or, you know, in any place where people were dying in large numbers, um, why vulnerable to violence, why, why should they be saved? Uh, these were pretty difficult places to live in. Well, you have to think about other things that these spaces had provided. Over the course of the war, they provided a freedom-seeking person with distance from their former slave owner. And it was very difficult to imagine oneself as free without that physical distance. They had also provided a place to reunite with family under one roof without the threat of the slave trade pulling them apart. They provided places to worship, as Gabriel Burdett knew well, without supervision. They provided places to learn and read, to read and write openly, whereas before there were many southern state laws that made that a crime. They provided places to, in the Whitehurst case, to set up a store or to farm land to get on their feet economically. They were new spaces um, that allowed these people to assume many dimensions of freedom. And the concentration of large numbers of people in one place had made some of these things, like churches and schools, viable. <coughs> so there was a lot uh, to appreciate uh, about these spaces. But from the Union Army's point of view, from the federal government's point of view, there was a problem. Because most of these settlements emerged in places that the Union had occupied and seized during the war. And as the war ends, they were called confiscated and abandoned lands. Well, as the war ends, a big political debate emerged. Should these lands be returned to their Confederate owners in the interests of sectional reconciliation and harmony? Or should the lands remain in Union hands and be sold and leased to these now freed people? Well, newly freed people strongly believed in the latter and began organizing. They pooled funds to try to purchase some of the land. They advocated that the lands be made available to be purchased. They held public meetings. They hired lawyers. They appealed to members of Congress. They made arguments like this from one group in Virginia. Are not our rights as a free people and good citizens of these United States to be considered before the rights of those who were found in rebellion against this good and just government? We were loyal. Why would you make this land or return this land to the disloyal? Well, this is kind of this is how the book ends. Uh, the last chapter is entitled "Grappling with Loss," and I think just from that title, uh, you can understand how well this fight went for newly freed people. There's not exactly a happy ending to this story uh, because emancipation did not, as I think we all know, lead to full unfettered freedom, full equality, or full citizenship rights for formerly enslaved people. The freedom struggle would continue well into the 1870s and beyond. But in my mind, I think uh, as we look back on the history of the Civil War era and try to comp comprehend it and today commemorate it, I think the story of what happened at these sites is really crucial. They remind us of the great risks that people took to achieve freedom, to obtain freedom. Freedom itself was not a status instantly bestowed and obtained. And I think they also remind us that what followed was not inevitable. 
the violence of Reconstruction, the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, federal withdrawal of protection in the South. Something else had been possible, as we see in these settlements, and it was glimpsed by each resident of the refugee camps in the 1860s. So I'll leave it there, and uh, happy to answer any questions, tell you a little bit more. If you have a question, just raise your hand and I'll come around with the mic. You talked about the ephemeral nation, nature of many of these camps, mm -hmm. and I wonder what kinds of resources and what kinds of materials you dove into to find out where they were located yeah. in terms of records. Yeah. Well, I mentioned at the outset that I traveled to the National Archives a lot, and what you get at the National Archives are federal government records, and what I looked at in particular were military records. Um, you know, reasoning that as this was an experience that was absolutely overseen by the military um, and uh, under the supervision that the military records would tell a lot. Um, and they did. Now, I don't know if anybody's done research in Civil War era military records, you're probably a little bit familiar uh, with them, but um, they are very organized. It's uh, actually amazing to see that in the middle of a combat zone, there were clerks there keeping these big ledgers and writing down every single order, uh, keeping track of who was receiving food rations and so forth. So uh, there's a lot of materials, but of course, the, the challenge of working with them is they are written entirely by white officers and clerks and uh, don't give us, by and large, the firsthand accounts of those people who were seeking slavery or seeking freedom from slavery. And so uh, you have to do a lot of reading between the lines when, um, you know, for example, I looked at a provost marshal record, which was the military police, and um, they, you know, are arresting, uh, you know, people in Virginia for um, selling whiskey. And uh, instead of just seeing that purely as, you know, law and order, you know, that's the kind of uh, record that makes me ask, well, why were they selling whiskey? Where did they get it from? What is behind this? Um, and, it, and you get a much fuller view of uh, the mindset and the concerns of uh, freedom-seeking people that way. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's transient, but they do show up in all of these records. And uh, sometimes you have to go really chasing after them with a lot of sources. Any other questions? Up, up there, it looks like. As long as I'm black, I will not have no rights for nothing. That's just a fact. That, that was the Dred Scott decision. And uh, so not just enslaved people weren't citizens, but anybody of color was considered not a citizen. This is the 1857 Supreme Court case. Um, and of course, what, uh, what happens in these camps is, you know, the people coming in themselves, they are seeking uh, recognition as citizens, and the army is starting to provide, uh, you know, some protection in the way that the federal government provides protection to citizens. 
So there's kind of an early movement towards recognition as citizens, but of course what it would take is the 14th Amendment um, after the war to overturn the Dred Scott decision and state that anybody born here in the United States would be a citizen, uh, that there would not be this restriction by color. We have another question up here. Uh -huh. Excuse me, a actually two questions. First question, Gabriel Burdett, was he a literate man or how did he receive his instructions uh, to put forth the slaves? Mm -hmm. Second question, as far as the, those who fought in the military, the blacks who fought in the military, did any of them receive pensions? Yeah, okay, great questions. Uh, Gabriel Burdett appears to um, have, been able have been able to read while he was enslaved. And uh, of course, for somebody who is ministering, uh, that's gonna be pretty important. And uh, how he learned to read, well, possibly, uh, you know, the way that others learn to read secretly uh, from, you know, some people learn to read and they start passing that on in a very secret, covert sort of way. Um, I know he did not write when he came into Camp Nelson because he started signing some documents with an X. But then eventually, uh, about a year after he arrives, um, in these missionary records I was looking at, there's a letter from him. And so somewhere there at Camp Nelson, he's learning to write. Um, he actually would become, in 1866, the first uh, appointed African-American member of the Board of Trustees at B Berea College. He was very committed to education. Um, so it was a really interesting rise. Um, as far as black soldiers and pensions go, yes, uh, they were eligible for pensions. And uh, for a researcher like myself, that's a really great thing because it means that there's documentation of their lives and their service. And um, I saw a pension from Gabriel Burdett. Um, Eliza Bogan's story largely comes through her, she applied for a widow's pension based on her husband's service. And um, what happens in these service, in these pension records is oftentimes the person applying uh, provides a deposition and a lot of firsthand information. And so I was able to learn a lot of key things about her life from that application. Any other questions? Well, thank you for this fascinating presentation. Very important and interesting details. What I'm curious about is this. The way it sounds from your presentation, all these settlements or camps were in Confederate states. None of them were north of the Mason-Dixon line, is that well, the that truth? So there were, they were all in slavery states. Right. But some of those states had enslaved people in between the Confederate lines and the Mason-Dixon lines. Right, okay, so good. It, well, it gets complicated. So my question actually is, was it the Union Army's policy, the federal government's policy, to keep them there intentionally, mm -hmm. or was it simply a matter of geography and it's you know far distant and it's yeah. difficult to travel? Travel. Yeah. So was it that? And also, after the war ended, did they move up north, okay. or did they stay yeah. in those states? Yeah, great question. Yeah. Um, so during the war, some of these commanders at a local at a, a particular outpost uh, are suddenly tasked with uh, not just overseeing their soldiers, but with a couple thousand other people too. 
some of them, and at Fort Monroe, uh, this is one example, General John Dix starts writing to northern governors and saying, we want to resettle uh, these people up north in Massachusetts, in New York, and so forth. And interestingly, all these governors, and he wrote to about nine governors asking, they all said no. We will not accept them, including the governor of Massachusetts, John Andrew, who was very anti-slavery. He would actually go on to help raise the Massachusetts 54th Regiment, which was a famed uh, black regiment during the war. But he said no, too. And they were thinking politics. Uh, they were thinking about, um, you know, their own political interests, uh, thinking about how much opposition there was going to be from white people in the north to an influx of enslaved people or formerly enslaved people. So uh, what to get to at the first part of your question, uh, what that means is over time, it does, despite the fact that the Union Army tries to resettle, and they do resettle some, uh, by and large, they draw kind of a, a line and uh, want to keep them in the South. But interestingly, I was really interested in, well, did, did the refugees themselves want to go north? You know, because we, we know before the war, that's the, on the Underground Railroad, everybody's headed north. This is north is to freedom. Um, but what I found by and large is actually a lot of resistance to it. And the resistance comes from uh, the fact that it's not that they want to, you know, that it's not that they have all this romantic attachment to the South or anything, but families there. And sometimes it's family that they've been separated from for years thanks to the slave trade. And uh, you're really not going to reunite if you go north. There's a chance uh, by staying south. Um, and also, there's a lot of concern about what the north is going to be like. Um, you know, some of this opposition, they, they're aware of it. So, um, so that, it becomes the policy to not resettle north. Uh, after the war, there is some migration north, but it's not uh, at a level like we would see decades later. Um, in the early 20th century, we would see a pretty mass migration of people north in the era of Jim Crow um, in the, what's called the Great Migration. So we don't quite see that um, because, again, you know, this is familiar place, but it's also where, where family is. And that's a really powerful thing keeping people in the south. Mm -hmm. I think we have time for maybe just one more question. Yes. question for you. Did, um, was I want to talk about the confiscating and abandoned lands mm -hmm. and um, ask you, did any of the slaves get to uh, keep their 40 acres of a mule mm -hmm. um, and um, um, stay on lands that were confiscated? Um, mm -hmm. I think Charles, I mean, uh, South Carolina is sort of in an area where some of that might have happened for a bit. Mm -hmm. But, um, and then I also wanted to ask you, um, a little bit more, can you give like more of an example and more detail on how they used and pooled funds together, oh the yeah. use of Freedmen's Bank? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I want to know a little bit more about that bank sure. and the lawyers and stuff like that. I want to know a little bit more. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, th you know, there are cases of people purchasing or able to lease land. Um, it does happen, but it's at such a small fraction compared to what it could have been had all these lands been preserved. Um, so I'll give you one example, Gabriel Burdett, in fact. Um, at Camp Nelson, what happens is the refugee settlement um, is on the lands of this white man who is actually fine with selling his land to free people. 
Um, there aren't many men like him, <laughs> but he was kind of unusual. And uh, he tries to do it, but then he gets all this pressure from his white neighbors to not sell. Um, inc- I mean, violent pressure. Um, so what he does is he ends up selling it to John Fee, who's the white missionary I mentioned briefly. John Fee purchases it and then turns around, div- subdivides it, and sells it. And Gabriel Burdett does buy about three acres of land. 40 acres is actually quite a bit. Um, what I've noticed is much smaller amounts when they do. Um, but generally, it, it was not these were more the exceptions than the rule. Um, so yes, you mentioned the South Carolina coast. There's some of that as well. Uh, there was 40 acres. I mean, a mule comes from uh, General William T. Sherman, who issues an order saying, you know, hey, we're going to divide up this land. Um, that eventually all gets overturned, largely. Um, and this is, we can thank the um, president who comes in after Lincoln is assassinated, Andrew Johnson, who's very much more sympathetic with Confederates. Um, so how they go about then trying to pool land and resources and, and get the money um, all together. And that was a really fascinating part of the story for me as well. Um, and, and how adamant in some of the public statements, you know, there's, there's a lot of Northern criticism saying, you know, land isn't a gift, you know, don't give away this land. And, there, and newly free people are saying, we're not asking for a gift. We're asking to buy it or have the opportunity to buy it or to lease it. Pretty simple. And um, so the pooling of money comes from, you know, their wages from working for the Union Army, which that's a whole other part of the story. Uh, All are promised wages, not all are paid, but some are paid. So pooling that, pooling uh, money from payments from being a soldier um, and so forth. And, uh, you know, eventually the question becomes, well, you know, where's, how do they keep this money safe? Um, I mean, I gave you one glimpse of the story with the Whitehurst. I mean, there's a lot of uh, pressure on them. And so the federal government does establish the Freedmen Savings Bank, which does become an important place to deposit money, but it also would become um, victim to some poor management, I guess. I'll sum it up. And uh, so there were some losses of that money as well eventually. But um, but it really, that is a really uh, important and, and pretty compelling part of the story. Please give a nice round of applause for Annie.